Singh, and welcome to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. Tim Fredericks, uh, one of your co-hosts here in the studio, along with my fellow co-host, Fran Gavin. Good evening, Fran. Good evening, Tim. And uh, this evening, we are continuing with our uh, series of programs that are curated by our doctoral students uh, this evening. I'm very pleased and happy to introduce uh, Sarah Northrup, who has put together this wonderful program. And Sarah, will um, I'll, I'll toss it to you right now so that you can introduce our very special guest and get the uh, program going. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Fredericks. Um, I'd like to introduce my guest, uh, Ms. Lydia Stiles, but before she uh, begins, I just want to give you a little bit of a background about her. Um, during the last few years, Lydia has won numerous awards for a teacher of science in the Denville School District in Denville, New Jersey, and she served as the district green team coordinator. Her awards include the 2020 ANJEE Environmental Educator, the 2021 Denville Good Scout Award, and the 2022 Denville Public School Staff Member of the Year. Recently, she has relocated and is continuing her love of science education on the outskirts of Acadia National Park in Maine. So welcome, Lydia, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me tonight. I appreciate it. Okay, so we're going to talk about a few things um, in regards to sustainability and service in both the classroom, school, and community. Uh, for the first part, I'd like to focus on sustainability in the classroom. My first question I have for you is, can you describe how you incorporate sustainability in your own classroom? Sure, absolutely. So I think from my experience that the most effective way to incorporate sustainability in the classroom is to do it naturally and to do it in ways where you're not even using the word sustainability each and every time you take a mindful action, uh, that it's almost something that naturally takes place in the routines that you establish in the room in the ways that you approach different topics um, that come up through the, the classroom setting. So I really do think incorporating sustainability needs to be done in a, in a natural kind of organic way, actually. Can you elaborate on some of the specific procedures or guidelines um, that just make the classroom more environmentally friendly and how like it becomes natural for the students? You must have to say some stuff from from the beginning so it becomes an organic process for them? Sure, absolutely. So a lot of it is through kind of mindful habits that are encouraged and developed. So we could, you know, lean in toward kind of the classic, this is a, you know, recycling classroom and making sure that those, that signage and, and process is easy to follow um, and, something that's not going to to be an interruption to the classroom so some of it is almost just passive um again through through signs and layout and design in the room some of it is directly instructional so the idea of um the way that we handle waste and materials in the classroom that needs to be I think directly discussed with students as to why it's an important practice not to be wasteful with resources and to take that conversation away from the fact that, you know, taxpayers paid for these things and, and into a bigger space, how we have an accountability toward our, our school community and our, our global community to be mindful about the resources that we use throughout our classroom time and then also how we can transfer some of that to to our out of classroom experiences too. Thank you. Sure. Um, just bringing it back to the classroom and I know students are always very excited about your class and what you do in the science classroom. Do you have any specific techniques or resources that help increase the student engagement and enthusiasm for environmental lessons? Sure, so I think some of what students look forward to is developing some routines or or some habits that they can kind of count on on nearly a weekly basis. So 
Some of those routines um, that are developed may include things like the animal care that takes place or may include things like that outdoor time that they can they can count on and know that they need to come prepared for um, really the the structure that's in place that students grow accustomed to uh, currently one of our practices is you know each each Monday I save up my newspapers and my other materials and we spend part of our Monday as kind of an impromptu current events that focuses on sustainability so students who come in on Monday already know that they'll be engaged and have conversations about things that are happening on a local, regional, national, and global level that relate to um, that relate to the, the outdoors and, and global community. Awesome. Awesome. As an ELA teacher, I, I love hearing about bringing more reading into the classroom with the current events. Um, you did bring up the animal care. So I know in the past you've had some pets in your classroom. Can you describe them and talk about a little bit of the impact they've made on the students? Um, is there a larger lesson at play besides, you know, just um, being cute and exciting additions to the classroom? Well, they're definitely cute, cute and exciting for sure. So uh, the, the three classroom pets are all reptiles. Um, at this point, they have traveled to their, their third school, the one that I'm in right now. So I've kind of had different experiences at all three locations with all three of those little stars. Uh, and to name them, we've got Rocky, our leopard gecko. We have Santiago, our crested gecko. And we have Princess, the infamous corn snake. Um, and all three of those have been just great tools to have student engagement, to have student engagement in terms of things that they may be familiar with if they're animal lovers or maybe complete novelties to them if they don't come from a family or have those types of experiences. Uh, all three of those animals live in really different habitats and environments. And so, you know, that leads to the conversations about how we set up their their terrariums and how they're accustomed and what their needs are for for care um and then we can continue with that interest and that engagement by by talking more about the locations and the regions that those animals are naturally founded in and the the ecosystems and biomes and the cultures that exist in those different locations so it's a really great great tool to have something live that's <laughs> cute and also directly ties into the science content yes it's, it is a little stretch for me to call princess cute but i i will i will agree i will agree <laughs> if it wasn't a radio show i'd be able to prove my point but you'll have to take my word for it <laughs> um so are the students able to help at all with, with the care of the animals or their enclosures or anything? Or how can they feel like a greater sense of responsibility about them? Well, that is a fantastic question and almost the reasoning why I mentioned that these critters are their third their third location because it's been a little bit different at, at each school. Um, so the, the way I'm most comfortable with having students involved is really in all of those aspects in a safe, responsible manner. So uh, being able to to help with just basic needs, you know, that food, shelter, and water thing, it's, it's an absolute must for each of those critters and for students to be able to help with that is really important. The school I'm in currently is comfortable. The students are a little bit older, but the students, um, have permission and the school is comfortable with them doing some supervised handling. And I think that experience really benefits students because you just make so many more observations about an animal and some of the, the slight adaptations by actually having one up close. Um, and I think it really gives students the chance to be excited and also develop a respect for something that would exist in a natural environment. Awesome. Um, just a couple more questions related to the classroom. Um, sure. 
one of them focuses on uh, how much you love to be outside. Um, and I was just wondering if you could give a few examples of ways you have brought your lessons outside and the impact it has made on the students. Sure, yeah, absolutely. The um, So different ways to bring lessons outside, obviously, you know, depends on the, the content. So sometimes bringing a class outside is really simply so you can experience a different setting, but not necessarily change the content or material that you're teaching. So that might be a paired partner walk where instead of working on paired partner questions and, and interviews at a desk, they're simply doing that same activity while moving through an outdoor space. That's a great structured way for someone who may not be really comfortable with getting students outside to say, oh, you know, that's that's all it's about. Like, we're not outside to get dirty and, you know, all the things that, that come into play when you, when you switch that up. So, as I said, sometimes it's simply a way to change the location. Maybe it's meant to give yourself more physical space, um, you know, change up that spacing and students' comfort level also changes when, when they're given that opportunity. Sometimes... And even better, you're outside to take advantage of what the outdoors offers for your actual content. And so for that, you know, that that could be the difference in, um, you know, looking at a, a soil sample in an indoor lab and talking about soil structure and things like that, which is great. But it's very different to go outside and actually have students do their own their own augering or you know, dig their own small plots so they can see a natural soil structure. Uh, it's a it's a really different experience to be able to to do that, and it's also much more authentic. Um, and I I know people sometimes view that getting outside requires a lot more preparation. It certainly does require preparation to be safe and not caught off guard by different things, but I would say by no means is it necessarily more time consuming than trying to replicate or recreate things by hauling all this stuff inside or by setting up, up labs that you could safely and reasonably do with a group of, of students. Great. And I know you touched on some of this already, but what what is some additional advice you could give to either a new teacher or a teacher who is thinking about taking the students outside, and this, this doesn't just have to be a science-related mm -hmm. lesson, but a teacher who's nervous about, you know, behavior outdoors and or even safety. So my advice to a, a, a teacher in that situation is, is really to think it through and actually get out into that space before they even bring a student out there. That helps in a number of ways. That helps from a safety perspective. So if you plan on using an area, say with picnic tables, to actually go out and give them a quick look and see if there's, you know, yellow jackets or see if there's places that have like a rusty, you know, screw that might scrape somebody and throw off the whole game plan. So a little bit of prep work ahead of time to make sure that the environment that you plan to, to go to is safe and has the things in place that you need to. It's also super helpful for uh, for managing students to have a location that they can go to. So whether you intend to have them sit at picnic tables or have them sit, uh, you know, when we went back to, to school for the first September back, I brought in five huge moving blankets and that's how we did group work outside was everybody got a corner of a moving blanket but it also meant I had a place for students to park themselves. And it is so important for teachers and students to know that building those habits gradually and intentionally is a really big part in making sure that behavior meets the expectations that are, are needed and will lead to better learning. And we'll actually get students outside more often uh, through that. So developing the habits gradually introducing the rules consistently and to it's okay to you know to start slow so students who are uh, teachers who are new to it don't have to feel like they need to have their entire class period outside it may be worth it to do it twice a week for 
15 minutes. And then when you come back inside to talk with students about what went well and what you would like to see changed the next time they have that, that type of experience. Great. Do you ever notice any issues with their behavior with the transition, either, you know, going out, all the excitement, the buildup, or the coming back in if there's still class time remaining and how to manage that and kind of get through anything else you need to get through? Yeah, absolutely. So, Sarah, when you and I taught together, your room was never really close to mine. So uh, that excitement is <laughs> certainly a big part of making a transition back and forth. Uh, there are plenty of times with, with the middle school level students and even some now with high school that, you know, you need to build in wait time and, you know, more than you might think you do. Like you might think that's just a, something you have to do with elementary students, but, you know, you, you may need to spend that extra minute waiting by the door until you have students who are truly ready to move themselves safely and calmly outside. And yeah. conversely, on the flip side, you may need to have a moment of calm and quiet and collection before students are able and ready to re-enter the building. So yeah. I could see you sometimes from my view of the garden, you know, but I, I, <laughs> I didn't get the whole, you know, the whole picture. I don't think. Absolutely. Yeah. And that actually brings up a good management point, which is have a routine, like a whistle that you're able to use. Um, it'll save your voice. It's a calmer way to, build those routines and and signal what you need to happen next thank you so much i think you've given us um, a lot of good information about how to promote you know environmental lessons and sustainability in the classroom um, and i like everything that you've said so far i think it's going to be very helpful for teachers going forward to you know get some new ideas of you know maybe having the courage to to get outside and try something different that they thought of but haven't been able to do so I appreciate that. Absolutely. That was fun. Thank you. Well, this is a good opportunity for us to take a quick break. Uh, you're listening to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. And welcome back to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. In the studio this evening with doctoral student Sarah Northrup and her very special guest, Lydia Stiles. And Sarah, I am tossing it back to you to continue this discussion. Okay, thank you, Dr. Fredericks. We are back uh, discussing sustainability and service in the classroom, school, and community with Lydia Stiles. Our focus for this session will be on the school community. So a question I have for you, Lydia, as a district green team coordinator, you have accomplished many successful projects and also even mentored a student green team. How did the green team start? What is the key to getting staff and students involved? All right, uh, great, great topic, great questions. Um, so the, the green team, I absolutely can't take credit for the green team was something that had begun before my, my time in the school where we shared, shared our time together. And that was really a, a product of a lot of, a lot of schools starting student green teams, right? So as, as we got the ball rolling and, and students and families and, and teachers became more interested in it, a lot of schools started up green teams. I think the, you know, the tricky thing is maintaining a green team. So sometimes it's easy to, to ride a wave, but when, you know, the, the novelty kind of wears off, being able to maintain a green team can be a difficult piece of that. Um, the key to getting staff and students involved, I have seen and experienced um, even here at my new school up in Maine. The key to that is number one, leading with your own passion. So really believing that what you're doing is important and, and to truly have that, um, that level of personal engagement and enthusiasm and excitement is, is something that goes, uh, or something that is definitely noticed by staff and students. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's a little bit of extra excitement that you're just able to, to kindle that way by really believing in, in what you're doing. Uh, and the, the other key that sometimes it takes me a little bit longer to learn is 
to be a little bit of a better listener about how other people are going to be able to, to connect personally to some of those same topics um, and, and to really follow up on their, their leads and recognize how you can maximize their interests to still achieve those common goals. That, that makes sense. Um, I think that's important. I think a lot of us as educators, you know, it's important to have that listening component as well and mm -hmm. to maximize uh, the involvement by focusing on their interest. Um, one of the big projects the green team has done is um, the Trex challenge. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and possibly how other districts could even get involved in something like that? Sure, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so the Trex Challenge is sponsored by the, the large company Trex that uh, has their composite boards and, and products that they um, have for purchase. Um, the Trex composite boards are made from plastic material. A large amount of that is recycled plastic as well as uh, as well as sawdust essentially from um, from the, the wood lumber industry. So the Trex company kind of looking for a way to um, to make green connections with communities and with schools has really two levels or two types of challenges that they promote. One of those challenges is a challenge that's directed to schools. And I think it's really fantastic um, that they, they look to target schools and school green teams. The other challenge that they also offer is done at a community level. And uh, that, you know, through municipality or through um, a community group. When in Denville, when we needed to decide between those two things, we knew that interest was there and people were really interested in recycling um, their plastic bags and also what Trex calls their plastic wrap. Um, you know, we looked at those two models and what stood out as a difference between the two is that the, the school model, the one solely focused on schools, had schools compete with other schools of similar sizes in order to collect the most plastic. At, at first I thought that sounded fantastic until I had students and families say, well, you know, no problem. I don't mind grabbing, you know, three bags instead of one bag when I do my grocery shopping. And, and it was really leading to some awkward conversations about how essentially they could produce more waste in order to help meet this challenge. That didn't sound like a great way to go about this at all. So we decided to work with our municipality and the Denville Township Green Team agreed to sponsor essentially the schools um, for our collection efforts. That became the Trex 500 pound plastic challenge. And it meant within a six month period of time that we as schools and our town library and uh, at, at town hall that we were gonna take on collecting plastic bags and, and plastic wrap to meet that 500 pounds. Uh, we managed to do it every single year. We managed to do it about a, a month ahead of time. Um, and actually, even more exciting, once New Jersey finally adopted their, their plastic bag ban, I wondered what the outcome was going to be, if we were going to be able to, to meet that challenge. And we did, because there's so many other types of plastics that are used in, um, in consumer goods, you know, if you think about Amazon bubble wrap and all that types of stuff, that was all that was all workable, good stuff for us, and uh, and so we did it. Um, you know, Trex Trex works kind of with a middleman on their uh, their collection, and then a bench is their kind of their token prize, which is really nice, and that's gone to one of our schools every year. That that's awesome, and I think that's really something that brought the students. Um, together, you know, with, with a goal that seems so, so big to begin with, but every year they were able to accomplish it. Um, another initiative of the green team, um, I mentioned it uh, briefly before, is uh, the garden at Valley View Middle School. I was wondering if you could describe how that was started and just the 
difficulty, if there is any, in maintaining it and the benefits of having the garden on the school campus? Sure, yeah. Uh, so the, the garden started, well, it started small and it started in a completely different location on the other side of the building, which was closest to the many of the science rooms. And it, was, it wasn't quite the right location. It wasn't right in terms of accessibility to water, accessibility to light. Um, but it was a good start kind of to get the ball rolling. And in conversations, we started to think, you know, well, if this isn't quite right, where around campus is quite right? And we started eyeing up other places that got better sunshine and had better traffic from, uh, from students and staff and better visibility because that's a great thing too. And, you know, easy access to water, which is kind of critical at certain times when you're gardening. So the location that we chose um, was, was really a big part of that being successful. And that success relied on having other people believe in it being a good project. So getting the permission from the school and from the superintendent for that, that location and how it was going to look and you know all the promises and assurances that go into, yes, it will be maintained and we've thought this through. Uh, the foundation of Denville, so our our district's supporting nonprofit to help us out with the, the funding for that was really key. Um, it meant we had to have a solid plan in place and understand and know how many boards and how many screws and every single component that was going to, to be put into it. It was also really important for us to, to look ahead and think about the things related to to maintenance and and upkeep because you know those are additional investments of time and and money um, and lots of foundations want to be there for the the initial expenditure but don't really want to say hey we're going to commit to replenish this you know every few years or every five years so you have to kind of plan and think ahead about how you're going to be creative in in those types of things difficult with maintenance you know summertime is a really is a really hard part for school gardens to to work so if a school garden is going to be successful either you're going to need to have a schedule in place for staff and parents and students to help out with things weeding and watering in the summer definitely a recommendation to have you know crops that can be harvested early or harvested late or to say, hey, we're going to do stuff all through the summer, and that's what we did for a few years, and you know, donate whatever we get to the local food pantry and, and do those types of things. That's, that's but, great. Yeah. I don't know if you heard um, that there's pumpkins growing in the garden right now, and we just had a contest uh, about kids you know, trying to guess the weight of the pumpkin. Um, so that was something fun that we did in the the cap in the lunches this year, they were guessing the weight of the Valley View pumpkin. So that's really fun. Hey, I, sh I should add, I know I'm not supposed to cut off my, my interviewer, but um, if anyone is planning a school garden, the size really does matter. And it doesn't, it doesn't seem um, at first it might not seem to make sense, but actually making sure you're thinking through how many students at a time you want working in that space because I would actually argue that the, the school garden might be a little too small and could use a tiny bit more space to make sure you have all hands effectively working when you're out there. Yeah, no, very true. Um, I did want to talk about the tree plantings, which was one of the big projects last year. Mm -hmm. I was just curious how that idea came about. How did you, you know, get the funding and the resources? the volunteers, and why was this project so important to you and the green team? All right, I'll try and go fast. Uh, so the tree planting project um, was part of an effort to improve the campus environment in terms of biodiversity and what we could, we, what we could offer uh, as far as our contribution or our giving back, right? So trees and understanding that the way trees capture carbon is an important part of, um, of how we handle climate change and talk about those topics. Um, it, that was really an impetus for it. And looking at our campus and saying, you know, gosh, people wanna come out here and really we don't have much shade to offer. 
and seeing for good reasons, part of the campus was uh, was clearing trees because the trees were in poor health and things like that. So it felt like the right time for us to take the step and do some replanting. We had some money from New Jersey Natural Gas, a competition from the, the prior year, and that money was to be spent on uh, was to be spent on a, a school ecological project. Uh, so that kind of fit in with that piece of things. We had a local nursery that gave us a pretty good deal on trees that helped out with that part. We had the uh, the Denville um, the Denville Garden Club. Um, a beautification um, committee, yeah, right? Committee. Sorry, I switched locations. I forgot what I'm supposed to say. Um, who helped out with the transporting of the trees, and then we had every student group and that included our athletic teams to help with the digging and the planting so we had no large machinery come in to to help dig those those holes and they were really big holes that needed to um that needed to get dug in a short amount of time for those trees to survive you mentioned something about you know getting funding from uh, JCPNL. What what was that project that you had that money left over from? Was that energy saving or something? Uh, so the um, the New Jersey Natural Gas. Yes, that one. Sorry. No, I, I do it all the time. I'll throw <laughs> yes, yes, ENG in there too. Uh, the New Jersey Natural Gas. Uh, they they've held different competitions. Uh, the one we had that funding from was a picture this caption that contest that they used to run uh, to promote energy saving and and conservation uh, we had students win that contest a few times actually and it was you know a kind of a neat way for for a group of students to get involved in thinking about how they wanted to share and showcase energy conservation great and go ahead they got money too so it was like it was a win-win the school got money the students got money it was nice awesome awesome yeah. and and the school got trees so it's yes good all around yeah. um before we close out here on the school um you know section of our discussion i was just wondering if you could maybe give a little information on how to get other subject areas on board um some examples of maybe a couple cross-curricular lessons Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, getting other, getting other subjects on board, uh, I would say a key to success with that is really can be two things. One, super helpful to have an a, an event that you're planning together, kind of as a way for other teachers and other subject areas to wrap their heads around the purpose for why they may want to they may want to do that so uh for example we use the green fair as a way lots of times to include our language arts department and writing poetry and doing projects and our arts department etc cross-curricular lessons are so powerful i was just having a conversation with somebody here at the high school setting for just how valuable that is and i think the key is you're not going to get every teacher to to buy into it initially. So the key is to find those teachers that are approachable and willing to take a little bit of a risk in their teaching to tie their lesson to somebody else, right? Like we so often in the teaching world don't want to be held to somebody else's way necessarily to do things that it is a little bit of a risk and it does kind of, you know, force you to plan in a different way. Yeah, and I know Speaking of the ELA, I remember last year um, we had honeycomb haikus. The students were writing uh, <laughs> the, the poetry, you know, for the honeycomb display that you were going to have. Um, yep. And I know art has also been involved w with a lot of the, um, you know, displays that you've had and definitely um, some other science classes, you know, besides your own. So I know the science class, you know, the curriculum. Um, everybody works together down there as well. So yes, and 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 Spanish teachers are on like the green team with you. So <laughs> yeah, super, <laughs> yeah, super super fun. I mean, so many so many of these things are almost water cooler conversations. Even though we never had a water cooler, but 
you know, copy room conversations where you're saying, hey, I walked by your room and I overheard you say this. What do you think about this? And, you know, some of those things just happen and really build up natural excitement. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. You're listening to Sarah Northrup and her very special guest, Lydia Stiles, on Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. And welcome back to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. I'm Tim Fredericks, along with my co-host, Fran Gavin, here in, in the studio this evening. Sarah Northrup, doctoral student here at Centenary University, has curated this program, uh, talking about all things green with her very special guest, Lydia Stiles. Okay, thank you. We're in our final segment here, uh, focusing on community and how the school can reach out uh, to build a successful relationship with the community and get them involved with sustainability and service. So, um, Lydia, you've been very successful with your community outreach at the variety of schools you have worked at. And I was just wondering, what is the trick, you know, in bridging the gap between the school and community? How do you know who to reach out to and how do you build this relationship? And any advice you might give to anybody else thinking about this? Okay, yeah, sure. So um, bridging that gap between school and community, it can happen if you don't have anything going on in the community or you're never getting out there. Uh, if there's something I've learned is that people who are in the community are often excited to make connections with people in the school, but they can also smell things out when it seems super phony. So if you're going to make that connection, uh, you have to find an authentic way to do it. Uh, and you know, one of our successful school community partnerships um, involves more than just one player. So I think that's another key part is to recognize the parts of a community that are already working together and how a school or a school green team can, can jump in there, not because they're just trying to piggyback, but to, to help build that momentum. It really is a win-win a when you already have partners in the community who are excited to have to have another another piece or element to work with as well so who would you say like you could reach out to would it be just the boy scouts girl scouts like do you go to the the mayor do you find like the committees that are active in the town do you have any specific groups that you've been successful reaching out to so every single one of those that you've named have been have really paid off uh, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. You know, we have those students in our classrooms often and, and those families are excited to have have their scouts do something that brings, you know, brings different parts of their lives together. Uh, some of the community groups often have uh, members who are either at home for different reasons or maybe they retired and they had their own children go through the school system no longer have that connection but still have a, a fondness and a willingness to to partner up and and work um the gosh really i mean we we just brainstormed all the the groups that we could work with we partnered with the library we partnered with the beautification committee the township green team the any organization that was willing to to do something outdoors uh we you know tapped into local businesses at different times who we thought may be able to help us out with things like free mulch delivery and and all those types of things and the you know the real trick is being someone who's willing to put in the muscle power and the, the time so it's not a one-way deal um and you know being genuine and being thankful for what people in the community are, are willing and happy to do for the schools. Yeah, and I think um, we have a great relationship between the school and community um, and Denville. And I know one uh, group that has been a good liaison for you is the Denville Farmers Market and the Sustainable Sunday Initiative. If you could explain a little bit more about that. Okay. So the Denville Farmers Market is a really was and is a really well established uh, part of the community that's that's been going on for some time and just keeps growing and becoming more successful. The uh, Lisi Lascara is the person who 
really runs that uh, farmer's market initiative. So also a school parent and someone who's a real champion of what happens in the community. Knowing that the Denville Down Township Green Team had done green fairs uh, each well, many Septembers um, as part of the Denville Farmer's Market, we thought that could be a great way for, for us to connect and partner as as school a school group or a school community too. They were more than willing and it was really a fantastic thing the first time we set up our green fair there and you know had the space and already had some of the people to capitalize on in terms of being visitors and, and the logistics of the whole operation. It made a lot of sense. The our very first green fair that we had was held at the school. And I love that for so many reasons, but in terms of, you know, partnership and and being realistic about what you could manage and promote, it made a lot of sense from both the farmer's market perspective and from ours to, to join up and band together. It was a, a real win because it put us out in a different, like physically in a different part of the community and a different part of the town. And it was a win too, because it, gave us an opportunity to showcase great things that were happening in Denville to people who were in different communities also. So the adjacent communities also got to see, hey, this is what's so cool going on in Denville right now. That's great. Um, I always loved uh, coming to the Green Fair and I do think it makes a big impact when it's at the farmer's market because there are different towns, you know, coming there as well. Um, so you had been teaching in New Jersey for quite a long time and we recently lost you to the beautiful state of Maine, but I was just had a few questions for you. Is there anything, like any project you didn't quite get to finish um, in New Jersey before you left? Well, I feel so fondly and strongly about the one that I left behind. That's almost hard to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so I was so excited because we had been making progress and had gained some traction on another another initiative on campus to improve our habitat space, so to improve our wildlife habitat space. And I was super, super excited and intrigued by the idea of using kind of our non-functional part of our campus to convert to a pollinator space or a pollinator, I guess, micro meadow type of thing. Uh, that would be the one project that I was so incredibly sad to have laid the, the groundwork for and done a, a lot of the behind the scenes stuff to try to make that happen. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, I still kind of, I still kind of pine away for that. And <laughs> I get so excited when I see other, you know, businesses and schools that are adopting that model of taking their, their unused space and doing something really fantastic with it. Okay. You know, maybe I'll spread the word a little bit. I'm sure some people still, you know, know about it. And I think there was something across the way at the, the park, but I don't remember hearing about anything on campus. But, um, I mean, that'd be neat, what, like, to have, like, wildflowers and stuff like that. Is that what you would envisioned? Yeah, definitely. And, th and there's different ways to go about it. Uh, you know, schools and schools always have to make sure that they're, keeping maintenance and you know long-term planning in mind so anything like that that's developed has to have some some really good solid groundwork for how it's going to be a functional space that fulfills the need but also going to be a space that's not an eyesore and uh, not considered um, appealing to a great number of people it's a it's a little bit of a risk depending on the community that you're in. Right, right. Um, so, and then in terms of, um, you know, the new school that you're at, I know you like to stay busy. You're always thinking about different things, you know, can do and thinking ahead. Has there been any ideas that either you're bringing with you from New Jersey or just brand new ones that you got when you're up there? Um, anything that you want to share with what you're thinking about? Uh, sure. We haven't talked in a little while, Sarah. So I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm the lead on on our new community service design team here at the school. And we just had our first meeting yesterday. So 
some of this stuff, you know, all the, the things like brainstorming organizations that are in the community to work with. We literally just went through that process yesterday and it's so exciting to bring that experience and to, to see how it can apply to a new location. Uh, I, I couldn't possibly take credit for everything fantastic that I think is going to come about because of that. Uh, and that's because the location that, that we moved to in Maine is, is already a pretty outdoorsy and sustainably minded community that I, I think I think there's already quite a bit at play here and it's it's I don't want to say it's going to be easier but it's just going to be different for sure. Right. And of course you you the lead on a service committee already. Look at you go. <laughs> <laughs> You're not surprising me. <laughs> there's a diversity, equity and inclusion committee that I'm part of too. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Good. Um, and so this is bringing, you know, me to all, all the great things that you do and have done. So you've received many accolades and awards for your service to students, school, and the community. I was just wondering, what are you the most proud of? Um, and then after that, if there's anything you wanted to comment on of any advice, you know, for people just starting out with this. But for first, let's focus on what are you the most proud of in everything that you have you've done? Um, I think what I'm the most proud of, well, you know, it it only it only occurred to me as as plans started to gain traction for us to move, and you know, for me to kind of be able to step back and say, all right, well, I wasn't quite ready for a move, and you know, I'm still longing for my meadow and stuff like that. But I think I'm most you know the most proud that I could see a real difference in that six year period of time that, you know, I could actually look and like walk around campus and be like, Oh yeah, we did that. And we did that. And we did that. Like just to be able to recognize that there actually were things that, that happened and took place um, was a really good feeling. It was, you know, kind of a neat way to see that there was going to be uh, symbolic or concrete things that, that were, still hopefully going to inspire even you know more change and more more time for sustainability and outdoors experiences for students and staff right and that there's you know there's tangible evidence of uh lydia's impact there right and <laughs> it was just you know and it, and it wasn't like it wasn't like a big like pride or boast it was kind of it, it was really satisfying to think oh all right i guess i did i did do something <laughs> And I, I know I only touched on a few things. There's, is there anything, you know, that I missed? Um, you know, I, uh, could I yeah. jump in, Sarah? Yeah. Do you know, uh, Lydia, uh, if uh, um, many of the activities that you're doing kind of um, uh, qualify for that point system that the state of New Jersey has, right, for communities mm -hmm. and schools? Can you talk? Can you talk about that process a little bit? And you know, what is the reward for achieving a certain level of uh, point accumulation for these environmental activities? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Sustainable Jersey for Schools is a really well recognized and well regarded program that's offered. There's also a Sustainable Jersey for Communities that municipalities. Uh, go through and and work towards different certifications. They both kind of work in a similar way, which is to have municipalities or communities or to have schools identify target areas that they would like to prioritize and show market growth or achievement or effort toward. Uh, so the Sustainable Jersey program, we the Denville schools um, participated in that. We went through the process for, for bronze certification, found it to be a really worthwhile effort. And it's definitely an effort that requires a great number, number of people to commit to um, being part of. So some people, um, you know, we had to kind of be realistic about things with COVID about how people were willing to spend their time and, and what 
they truly had in terms of the energy that they could give. We kind of scaled back a little bit um, because of that, but I think it would be a great thing to revisit with the sustainability groups at the school. It's a really excellent model for, for other states as well. Excellent. And then just one more question for me. I noticed that you did your um, uh, preparation uh, in college at Stockton. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that being at a campus that's, that's so close to the ocean and uh, kind of all the opportunities that that provided uh, might have had some impact on your decision to become a science teacher or to, to uh, reaffirm that decision at least? Yes. So my my path at Stockton, I, I actually did two rounds there because I grew up in a family of educators. My dad was a longtime teacher in Baltimore County, Maryland. My mom was a longtime educator also in Baltimore County. And my intention when I went to college as an 18 year old was to not do anything in education. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that is the truth. My plan was to, I'd fallen in love with environmental science and that was really what I wanted. I wanted to have a career in environmental science and, and make my mark in that way. So I went through Stockton. You, you mentioned it's a fantastic campus. Environmental programs there are, are you know, top notch. So ocean, pine barrens, you know, sand dunes, all that space was, was really a great inspiration. But again, I didn't want to be a teacher. So I graduated and I worked on, on two programs. I worked with public access for National Wildlife Refuge System, and I worked on a program to encourage municipalities to adopt better ordinances for wildlife. I really liked that work, but it was super lonely. That was before people were really telecommuting, and I was, you know, a 21-year-old, 22-year-old working in a house in the middle of a wildlife refuge by myself. It was super isolating. And Eric, my husband, and I had a heart to heart. He said, well, you know, what do you really want? I said, oh my gosh, I really want to be around people. And I really want a day that is exciting and changes day by day. And, you know, the more we talked about it, the more we said, all right, it sounds like you want to be a teacher. <laughs> and I said, you know, I guess I do. <laughs> so, so I went back to school uh, for my my teaching uh, certification, and I went back to Stockton because Stockton also had a great teacher ed program. That's wonderful, and that that's uh, definitely our field's gain that you went back, uh, you know, uh, to get that teaching cert and uh, devote your life to teaching and sharing your love for the environment. A wonderful thing. Well. I think that we have just about reached the end of the line for our program this evening. Uh, I want to thank uh, our uh, special guest, Lydia Stiles, our doctoral student, Sarah Northrup. On behalf of uh, my co-host, Fran Gavin, and myself, uh, you've been listening to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. 